Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. Last week, we spent an awful lot of time going through these three things, kind of the three prominent worldviews that are floating around out there. We got pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. Does that sound familiar to anyone who was here last week? They're all on the same page. Good. Good, good, good. Um, Again, uh, I call them football, Calvin ball, and chess. Football, because pre-modern typically has um, an objective, concrete set of rules that you follow. Typically, those have been dictated by Scripture, by God, and the truth keepers were the church. But there is an objective truth that is... um, Uh, being maintained and sought to trying to conform yourself to. That's why it's called football. You don't go into football and and, um, make up the rules as you go along unless you're early in the football. Anyone seen the movie Leatherheads? Um, George Clooney, kind of early football years where they were pulling all sorts of sketchy things. It it was actually pretty dang cool. One team actually um, took large patches in the shape and color of a football and sewed it onto their jersey right here. And so they say, hike, and everyone ran around like this. <laughs> Looks like everyone had a football. They, w- they would throw punches. They were biting and kicking. They were eye gouging. It was a mess. So um, once the football rules are established, when you play football, when you call yourself a football player, you are agreeing to that set of rules versus Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball, again, is a ref- reference to uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, Bill Watterson's cartoon from the 80s. And Calvin Ball is a game he made up where there are no rules or you don't play it the same way twice or you play it in a way that's always going to optimize uh, the chances for you to win. And that's kind of the competition is can the other person bend the rules, make up rules, come up with something that's going to win the game for them. So there are no rules in Calvin Ball. and football there are very um, defined rules. And then chess is kind of that middle section of the modern time era, which is, um, again, science, the enlightenment. It's when we started to uh, build machinery and all those kinds of things like that, understanding how our physical world works around us. And you are looking for repeatable, measurable, uh, tangible, concrete experiences to explain the world around us. What is the big question that all three areas try to answer? What is the one area we're concerned with the most in all these areas? Thank you. Truth. I want to I be as clear as I can through some of this. If you are calling yourself a believer, if you're calling yourself a Christian, if you associate with that term and you are trying to live that out in your life, then you have a pre-modern world view. You fall into the objective football game. Why? There are expectations about what you should be thinking and believing. Okay? Yes. Why else? Because of how it answers the truth question. How does it answer the truth question? Truth comes from God, an objective standard. It's not subjective. That's the main thing. So again, for those who are believers, we tend to um, 
you have to understand that you are, you are seeing the world through a pre-modern football mentality. Everyone tracking with me on that? I want to be really, really clear with that because, um, well, I'll tell you why in a second. Again, I have a tendency to jump ahead here. Um, troop, come on. Come on. Okay, this is going to be fun. Push once. For Christianity and for football, truth can be known. Rules can be known. They actually have a book in football. Here are all the rules. Referees have to memorize them. Truth is objective and written down in Scripture. And then we are called to conform to that objective truth. We are not supposed to conform the rules, the book, to us. We're not supposed to conform Scripture to us. We, if we call ourselves believers, are supposed to conform ourselves to that. See how that works that way? Questions or thoughts so far? I like modern up until the truth question. Why? And what does that do for you? That's a good counselor question. Football doesn't like any science. People listening to this podcast are going to be going, what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Say again. There you go. See? Now, if you've got, you got your fantasy football, you're doing all the math, you're trying to figure it out, and it's very scientific, you want to play it that way. But um, pre-modern doesn't have the concrete answers. Is that a way of putting it, or...? Yeah. Okay. If you lived prior to 1650, yes, the, they, they were interested in finding answers. How they went about finding those answers were very limited, again, by this narrower scope of information, education, understanding, those kinds of things. They were still looking for answers, but they were, again, they were limited by what they had available to them at the time. Right now, if you want to see a planet, all you got to do is get out your smartphone and start, start scrolling. Back then, you couldn't, you couldn't see planets, you couldn't see cells, you couldn't see anything. So technology has, has helped us along that way for sure. Yeah. You have a question or a comment? Uh, I was going to hitchhike. Great. Hitchhike. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Sure. And that conflict that you're feeling, I don't know if you can hurt if you can hurt him. Boy, it's going to be a long night. Um, that conflict of I, I, I want to be in the first column, but there's other things in these other columns that I, I value or I want to hold on to. Um, that conflict is very, very real for an awful lot of people. And, and I want to, 
that's why I've been doing this entire series is to get clarity on some of those major questions because I have them internally as well. Now, what I want you to hear very, very importantly is we're dealing with one, one narrow area in these three worldviews up here, okay? pre-modern world has wonderful things. Their, their faith was vibrant and, and historical cultures were developed and, and I mean all of history was in there and tradition and all that stuff. All of that I'm not, I'm not denouncing one bit. That is fantastic and actually should be encouraged and sought out and learned and known and, and all that good stuff. Modern age. I am really glad we have the modern age. I'm, I haven't actually personally done it. Can you imagine giving birth without modern medicine and pain meds and hospitals and all those things. I mean, death rates for infant mortality was just through the roof. I like modernism. I like this button that can make words show up magically on the screen. That's fantastic. I like getting in my car and being able to travel from here to Clackamas, and it doesn't take me three days like it would have years and years and years and years ago. That's a good thing. Modern, mo the modern world has wonderful, wonderful things in it. I'm not denouncing any of that. And I actually love the postmodern world. Now, how's that a little weird to say, okay? I love the postmodern world because um, I think one of the things that the postmodern world has started to do well is the, in the area of empathy and validation. I think it is able to say your feelings do matter and we can get out of our head and it isn't, you just don't do it because I tell you so. Again, in the realm of parenting, in the realm of marriage, holy smoke. You should, I have some books on marriage advice from like the 1800s. Fun read. <laughs> Great read. I should do that series next year. How about that? Um... How to love my wife. Because I live in a postmodern world and I, and I actually learned that my wife has these things called feelings. Um, and they're important and they matter and her story matters. That's, that's incredibly valuable. So I don't, I don't want to remove the value of any, one of the, any one of those three categories. They all have tremendous value. But when we look at the area of truth, where do you find truth? That's where we get into a little bit of a sticky point. Does that make sense? So can we kind of narrow it to how do we find truth? How do we answer what is true? Everyone with me still? I don't know if I created any tension in anyone last week because I know I landed real heavily on the postmodernism and understanding what that is and kind of the pitfalls and downfalls of that. So I'm trying to kind of catch up and say this is where we're at. Postmodernists, a, a lot of people today, again, they like to make their own world, their own truth. If you're a believer, again, you are... You are choosing to submit yourself to an objective set of rules. And we're going to come back to that theme over and over and how that plays out in our world and how to do that well. All right. Um, that is a very powerful statement. I'm not sure I'm going to read it out loud because if it's on the podcast, I might be held accountable for it. All right. You can't be a postmodern Christian. How many of you, does that stir a little bit of Let's put on the brakes, and that doesn't quite sit quite right. Yeah, we got one, two, four. Okay. That's a hard statement. Again, why do I say that? Hey, that's a, that's, that's a statement. 
There is no question mark at it, so it is a statement. I don't think I'm saying it to be provocative. I am trying to state a, a fact. Now, we can wrestle through this. This is what I like about Refuge, as well I like doing this series, is because these are the questions we have to wrestle with every day. These are the questions I sit with my clients day in, day out, because they're wrestling through these things. I have many, many um, clients who are believers and want to truly do their best to serve and honor God, and at the same time, they are facing these questions of, but if I want something and it's contrary to Scripture or contrary to God, what do I do with that conflict? Because at that point, I have to make a decision on how I proceed with my life. And how you make that decision comes from which worldview is most prominent in your life. Now, again, I'm not going to be totally black and white. I don't think anyone is 100% here and 100% here. We're, we're kind of working our way through all of them because if you actually want to come back at me really easily, you can go, well, you're using logic and reason, which is a very modern way to, of a way of approaching an argument to, to prove a pre-modern <laughs> question. I mean, it, it can get kind of fuzzy in there. So, but why, why do you think a Christian can't be postmodern? Because truth is not relative. If right, right. Right. Yes, this is very true. I know I should eat healthy most of the time. I know that. And yet, man, chocolate cake? I'm pretty sure that that's moral anyway. That's just, there's not a problem eating that, but too much of it? So yeah, knowing and doing becomes conflictual. Yes? Real loud. Yes. Um, and in addition to that, with the excess, with the main truth, telling us to stay away from the words of unhelpful folks, right. and who Christ is, right. then we can't compromise on that because what we're really saying is that other ideas are wrong. And right. So in the postmodern sense, that's kind of huh? one thing that you can't do is say someone else is wrong. Quit reading my notes. That's about <laughs> 20 minutes from here, okay? But. Remember that video I showed last week of the six foot five Chinese woman who was actually a five foot nothing white guy? Who am I to tell anyone that they're wrong? This is the, this is the conflict we're sitting in. And again, it creates the distress as we go through pain, both our personal pain and as we sit in other people's pain. Because it's hard. It's hard to hold that stance. If you're a believer... You, and you are doing your best. And again, we're in process. Again, I'm not, I, fundamentalism, that's not what we're talking about. But we're doing our best at being truly obedient when you have that objective standard, which is the word of God, and you're trying to live up to that. You cannot live a life where, which is truth is subjective. You can't do both. Now again, I, I'm curious, yeah, I'll skip that. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Christianity is inherently pre-modern. I actually like the word medieval. I have a medieval worldview. 
I'm walking around in a postmodern world with a medieval worldview. Makes it bizarre. Okay, if we're playing football, if we're, if as believers, for those who call themselves believers, and I'm not making the assumption that everyone in the room is, I wanted to be really clear on that, okay? But if you call yourself a believer and you are playing football, then is it appropriate to invite accountability? Timothy Keller, good grief. <clears throat> Timothy Keller has a quote that says, Love forgives the most, but condones the least. A jealous God will fight for you when you are straying. A jealous husband, if my wife claims to be a believer, is making decisions that are contrary to the word of God, it would therefore be love for me to come to her and say, honey, dear, I love you with all my heart, and what you are doing is actually wrong, and I'm not going to tolerate the behavior that you're doing when what you are doing is objectively wrong. Love doesn't condone everything. It condones the least Love says, I'm going to fight for you when, when you are going astray. Does that make sense? I will do that with my daughter. I'll do that with my kids. If they're starting to make decisions that are, that are going to lead to a path that is going to lead to extra pain and hurt. And it is, again, not by, not by my subjective decision. This isn't a parent who goes, what you're doing is inconveniencing me. and I just want to stop you because I don't want to have to deal with that. We're talking what you're doing according to scripture is, is clearly lined out as wrong and it's going to lead to pain, which is actually just the natural consequence of anything that doesn't align with scripture. That is the natural consequence. Isn't it love to say, stop, stop, don't go there. Please stop. You are wrong. Love does that. Okay, these buttons are going to be fun. Telling someone to stop it, again, is the ultimate postmodern sin. How can we do that? There's a sin in postmodernism. It's called telling someone they're wrong, telling someone to stop it. We can't, we can't do that. I touched on this last week, and I wanted to come back to it again because I thought that this is actually really, really important. When, when my child young little kids, when my child says, I demand to understand before I accept your reasons and submit and or obey, it places their knowledge and perception above mine as a parent, or places my knowledge as a finite being above an infinite all-knowing being. It says, only if I condone, only if I agree, only if I give you permission, then I'll submit because I agree with you. At that moment, you're actually placing yourself in the, my, my choice, my perception is actually more valid than yours. And I think that's a scary or a dangerous place to put yourself. Um, this morning, I was sitting with a client. She gave me permission to tell this story. I asked her because it's just too poignant. Um, my client is um, of mixed race. Her father was black, her mother was white, and she is enduring the, the profound um, 
injustices and pains that are happening right now because of the racial divide that we're seeing in our culture right now. She's feeling that. She's having to fight for some of that. That pain is very, very real to her. She has two kids. One is six and one is two. And on the way home last week, she's driving in her car, and her six-year-old's in the back seat, and he's just yammering on about stuff at school, and he, she's kind of in that autopilot space that parents get to when kids are talking about things that are relatively unimportant, and you just learn to nod at the right time and uh-huh at the right time. Usually it's around Pokemon stuff is when that happens for me. Um, and then out of the nowhere, out of the blue, her six-year-old son says, I want to get the quote right. Her, her son says, Mom, how did all the killing start? And this mom, who loves her child very deeply, very dearly, freezes. How does a mom explain the racial tension and history and injustice to a six-year-old? Is it even possible? He's hearing that information from somewhere. He, he heard it on the news or he heard it at school. He heard it from somewhere. And his little questioning mind, curious little mind, is great for a six-year-old. Mommy, when did all the killings start? Mom loves him very, very much. And even though she might desire to explain in depth, his mind will not be able to understand the nuances and the subtleties and the importance and the, even the gravity of the situation. Would you agree? And that would burden, that would burden me as a parent. Because, number one, I want to protect my child from all of the crap that's out there in the world right now. And so she, again, as a good parent, she, she tries to answer in very basic, concrete ways and then pulls what I think is actually a lot of wisdom. She just stops talking, just stops answering questions. And after about 20 seconds, he goes, oh, look at the boat out there. Problem solved, he's off to the next thing. Because I'm not sure there's an answer that she could give that would satisfy him. Guys, we're six. And our little tiny minds trying to understand why in the world the things are happening that are happening in this world right now. I, I don't have this grand picture. I don't have the, the master plan laid out to me. And so I'm tracking along and following it. Oh, that's where we are right now. How many saw that movie? Um... Oh, shoot. Not Inception. That's the one where they fold over, inner, 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 inner. Um, what is it? Not Interstellar. That was last week. Shoot, the one with the book and, huh? Adjustment Bureau. That's my daughter. Good for her. Um, <laughs> you guys seen the Adjustment Bureau? You can tell we like movies at our house. You haven't seen the Adjustment Bureau? Fantastic movie because there's a group of people, men, who have the book on how your life is supposed to plan out. And they are the ones who are literally making sure this door is locked and making sure you cross the street at the right time to meet the right girl at the right place so that you can end up in the right job. And if you get off of that, they're called the Adjustment Bureau. they got to come in and kick you to a little bit to the left to get you back on plan. I don't have that book. I wish I did, but we don't. We're six-year-olds. We're, we're toddlers when trying to understand the plans of God. And for us to stand here and say, well, to say the things that I hear over and over and over again, which is, um, I could never believe or trust in a God that wouldn't allow, insert your favorite social area or, or behavior there. I could never believe in a God that wouldn't allow that. 
as in I have to give permission to God and then I will believe in him. Problematic in that thinking. Problematic not just on a logical level, but on a, on a, on a way you experience the world level, the expectations you have around the world, the, the sense of perceived power that you hope you have and you don't. Those expectations lead to massive disappointment and hurt and pain in our lives. And again, I can't stop the pain. I do think we can adjust the expectations. That makes sense? The other thing I hear a lot, I couldn't believe or trust in a God that wouldn't allow innocent people to be in pain. If a God allows pain. And I've heard stories that I will never, ever tell anyone because the pain that, the, that people have to sit and endure will break your heart. Breaks my heart on a daily basis. And yet there's people who go, because people are hurting, if God allows that pain, I'm not going to believe in him. It's understandable. It's, again, that, that reaction is understandable, but also painfully limiting. It limits your hope. It limits your further progress in where you're going to go in life. Is that making sense? I'm sorry, Ben, say it again. Just for the sake of the podcast, the people who would allow I could never believe trust in a God that wouldn't allow. Did I mess up on an apostrophe? That would allow innocent people to be in pain. Remember that failure 101 class I was talking about last week? I still accept myself. Shoot. That should be wood. There's someone in the room right now who's very good at grammar and is, she's been kind enough to point things out to me. I'll blame her for not catching up, even though she's never seen it before until this moment. Um, I had this last time again. Um, Is it possible there's a greater reason we cannot understand? That's That's a legitimate question. Is it possible that an infinite, all knowing God has a greater plan or greater reason that we cannot understand and we're called to move back into that place of faith and trust and not to have the information just like that six-year-old who isn't going to understand and comprehend yet now again this is this is an explanation as to why or how we can move through pain i'm not saying that it is easy this answer doesn't say oh Now I'm losing my house and my job and my family, and I feel better now. It doesn't do that. It doesn't adjust the pain. But it is the foundation for giving us hope through the pain. That was the number one goal I wanted you to get from the series last week. I want you to be able to go through painful situations and still cling to hope, knowing you have not been forgotten. Again, I had this last time. I'm going to refine you. I think this is what God aches to say to us. I'm going to refine you, but it's going to be difficult. I still love you and have your best interest in mind, but it's not going to be easy. Will you trust me? I'm not going to tell you how it's going to end, so you can't give your shoot. 
You consent. Can't give your consent. I shouldn't do these late at night. You wouldn't understand or agree anyways. I'm asking you to trust me wholly and completely. How many of you are comfortable with the verbs and the, the action in that? Trust, wholly, completely, consent. Pay attention to how those sit with you because those are not postmodern words. Those are not postmodern words. They actually ask you to pick a side. They say, I'm not going to be on both sides or every side. I'm going to be on one side. And for some of you, again, those might be difficult words even to receive not even from an almighty God, but maybe from your spouse, maybe from me for the first time. I know I sit with clients all the time, and I genuinely, truly take off my counselor hat and I put on my human hat, which says, I just ache for you. I'm so sorry you are hurting. And I know, I know you can't see your way through this counseling process. I can. I know where we're going. I'm not going to lose you. I'm going to do my best to bring you along. And you're going to have to trust me. In fact, that's one of the things I have um, conversations early on with my clients. First, second session, it's like, you're not supposed to trust me yet. You don't know me yet. It would be foolish to place all your trust in me until you have more experience with me to see if I am reputable, if I'm honest, if I'm consistent. And then you slowly start building trust. But again, I'm a fallible, frail human being. I screw up all the time. I, I make mistakes with my clients all the time that hurt their feelings, or, or, and we work through that. But a God says, I want you to trust me, and that is tough. That is tough. <sighs> because I can see more than you, I know what needs to be done, and I love you. That's the motivation. Not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not because you have somehow... Um, done better than the other person next to you because I have made you in my image. You are loved. Those words are hard to hear as well, especially in the midst of some of your pain. I know hearing I love you and knowing that your world is falling apart. Great. It's hard to sit in that together because it's like, it feels like you've forgotten me. It feels like you're not here with me. It feels like I'm in this alone. And being able to trust that God is still there is a struggle. And I want to honor the struggle. I truly want to honor the struggle. But I don't want you to lose the hope. Accountability and football. Breathe. I need to do that. Ah, good. By the way, back rows, corner of the inner corners of the pews, for those who had questions and wanted to write them down, that's where the baskets and pins. So you, if you have some of these questions, you didn't have to come up to the front and wave on the way through. You can actually get question, paper and stuff on the way, make it look like you're going to the bathroom or getting coffee or something, and then no one will ever know. Write down your questions, um, or again, you can ask them as we go through this kind of, if you just want to dialogue about some of these things. Um, accountability and football. Again, we touched on some of this already, but God is, good grief. God has given us clear, written instructions on how to live. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to hope we know what the instructions are. We actually have it in written form. 
and we are called to hold ourselves and other believers accountable to that objective standard. People, I think, are pretty comfortable with the first part. We're called to hold ourselves. How many of you are, again, it grates a little bit of, we're supposed to hold other believers accountable? We have permission to do that? Is that true? But if you're playing a game that has objective rules, it's appropriate to have someone who is going, you have broken a rule, and there's a consequence, or here's how it affects the game in some way. And so again, if you're a believer, if you're in a pre-modern, objective truth worldview, it's appropriate to hold yourself and other believers to that same standard. That's the guy. That's what it looks like. What's the yellow flag mean? It means he's a Baptist? Is that what you said? <laughs> wow. <laughs> flag in football means what? Somebody broke a rule. It actually means several things. Here's where, if they throw it where the, where the, where the foul happened... It means to stop the game. It means we're actually going to stop, and the referee actually gets along with other referees to say, now what happened? How do we handle this? How do we move through this? Let's make sure we're fair. Let's make sure we're appropriate. Imagine football, again, before instant replays. Whew, that was a mess. I mean, real big mess. Somebody is actually hired to hold the rules and keep people accountable to them. You had a question up front here. What is the standard that we are supposed to hold non-believers to? What a beautiful question. I love that question. Um, here's how I answer that. You and I are playing football, okay? Um, your husband, Reed, he's not playing football. Does he have to follow football rules if he's out running around on a field? He doesn't. So is it appropriate for us to, if he's running down the field, no helmet, no nothing. Again, if he does it in the middle of a football game, that might be dumb. But if he's out there just, you know, on a Saturday or, you know, whenever, and he's just running around the field, do I need to run out there as a referee and throw the flag down and go, sorry, you were, you're out of bounds there. Stop. We actually can't hold them to our rules because they are choosing to say, I'm not subjecting myself to this to this worldview towards this belief system. And if someone chooses not to do that, I don't think it's our job to come along and to tell everyone they should be following all these rules because they're not playing the same game. Does that make sense? Now, I think a more accurate question is how should we relate to them? Because if they're doing things that might actually be causing harm to either them or us, I think it is appropriate for us to well, I will do what Christ does, which is you relate to them, you sit with them, you, you get to know them, you befriend them, you lovingly accept them unconditionally as they are still in that kind of working through state, hoping that your life, your, your freedom that comes by having objective rules, how about that? The freedom that comes from having objective rules. I'll even go one step further. The freedom that comes from having an authoritative or authoritarian worldview system, they can see that that actually brings more freedom rather than less. 
That is the hope, that they can see that in our lives. Now again, I would probably go back to the, how many Christians are actually living in freedom? That's a whole other topic. I'm not going to touch that one right now because we're not going to go down that road. One of the things I love about the Old Testament, my favorite book in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. That's like an old, Old Testament. That's like way back there in the really boring chapters section of the Bible. It's not even like the story section. It's just like all the laws and rules. But over and over and over again in that, in that book, it clearly says, Dear Israelites, please do all of this and all the other nations around you are going to look at you and go, Wow, where did they get such wisdom? How did they learn to live so well? The, the rules, the, the, the framework that, that God placed on the Israelites wasn't to say, I'm taking away all your fun. You can't, I know you really, that looks tasty over there. You want to eat that? No, you can't eat that. And so I'm ruining your Saturday night dinner. He's not doing that. He's going, there's a reason for it and I want to keep you protected. I don't want you to experience or feel or deal with the consequences that come from living in a world without these objective rules. And by the way, if you're going to follow someone who has objective rules, you might as well follow the guy who made the thing. Man, if you're going to get a brand new car, read through the owner's manual. It might tell you what that little button on the dash does that just nobody knows what it does. Oh, that's what it does. It gives you explanations. So you might as well follow the rules of the guy who built the place because it might explain things. So for, for non-believers, we're supposed to, supposed to love on them the best that we can. And they will know that we are Christians by our, by our love. Christ did that. He went and had dinner. Sinners, tax gatherers, prostitutes. He sat with them. He didn't say, clean up your act, now we'll have dinner. He sat with them. And because he sat with them, they go, how do I get what you got? Please. And in this world, man, we could use a lot more of that right now. A lot more of that. When we choose to submit ourselves together to an objective standard, we have true unity. It means I'm not, trying to live my, I'm not trying to live up to you and you're not trying to live up to me. I see that in couples all the time. I love, 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 love working with couples. I think marriage is one of the most wonderful things that we worked on and grown. And marriages that are often in crisis are going, here's how my world should be, husband says that. Here's how my world should be and I just got to go to this counselor and have him convince my wife that my way is right. How well is that working out, ladies? And then the wife says, oh yeah, well, I got to get him to understand what my, my way of going through life is a lot better. And if I can just get him to agree with me. They're arguing from two subjective points. I would make the suggestion, you tend to get unified when you say, here's an objective standard of what healthy marriages look like. So I as a husband, I'm going to try to live up to this standard here. I as a wife, I'm going to try to live up to this standard here. Now we're actually going in the same direction towards the same goal in the same way. And we're not arguing over toilet paper over the top or toilet paper under the bottom anymore. There's only one objective way of putting the toilet paper on the roll. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Does that make sense? When we have an objective standard together, we actually have beautiful, wonderful, true unity. And I think that brings peace. 
I think that brings congruence within ourselves, which feels refreshing and trustworthy. Opposite of the postmodern mantra, which is, I'll do it my way. Postmodern couples counseling, that's a fun game to play right there because they are coming in going, I'm going to figure out how to do it my way. I had a question last week from written down, but this is the right place to put it. Good grief. Harsh. Did it down, jump to? Good grief. How can we provide condemnation tactfully? I actually used that word. Is it appropriate to condemn the actions, behaviors, not a human being, but actions and behaviors of someone else who, again, is doing something that is objectively, according to this objective truth up here, not in line with that. How do we do that tactfully? Should condemning others with tact even be something we try to achieve? Absolutely, 100%, yes. How you approach someone and bring them back when they are taking steps that are transgressing or getting off of the path is usually the difference in restoration or losing them forever. How we do that is oftentimes much, much, not much more important, is just as important as the actual topic itself. Um, harsh or condemning Christians aren't too radical in their faith. They are not radical enough. Christians are supposed to love radically. We're supposed to truly sit in things with people and accept them. Not their behavior, but accept them. And so when you can love on someone, I sat with another couple recently. Husband had done something that had hurt his wife's feeling. His wife was having an incredibly hard time softening towards him, even allowing, allowing an apology to even sink in, to break through. She was just so kind of hurt and in that self-protective strategy that she had learned from very early on in her life. Um, how do you sit with someone who is hunkered down like that? It's like, I want to make things right and you're not letting me in. I would argue as a believer, as a Christian, you fight hard for them. You endure. That hurts. I know that that hurts. That is not easy. Again, I'm not saying that it's simple. I'm not saying that it's going to be quick. But I am saying believers, when you're trying to bring someone back into fellowship, when you're trying to restore them, you fight for them and you do it with massive amounts of love, patience, kindness, understanding, and yet truth. You are kind enough to say, I love you and you are wrong and you need to get right. But in a postmodern world, even saying something like that sounds, well, that's harsh, isn't it? That's where your postmodernism has to kind of exercise its muscles. I would say that that's not unkind. I told the story, I think, last summer, but I'll tell it again. I, um, church I attended a long time ago, the um, college pastor kind of had a gruff mannerism about him. He was um, kind of impatient and kind of left a wake of hurt feelings amongst the staff and students and things like that and he was, was unaware of kind of how he was coming across and um, he's actually telling this story from the pulpit that's how I have this story so I'm, I'm not allowed, I'm allowed to share it um, and our executive pastor he one day 
knocks on the college pastor's door, comes in, closes the door. It's never a good sign. Sits down in front of the college pastor and says, I come as a friend and I come to wound you. It's one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard. I come as a friend and I come to wound you. What you are doing is wrong. What you're doing is hurtful. What you're doing is leaving a wake of, of, of devastated people behind you. And if you don't change, I want you to change. But if you don't, you don't have a job here anymore. Now, let's help you change that. Let's get you the skills that you need. Let's get you whatever you need to actually facilitate that change. Jesus didn't say change, stop it, and then go away. He says, I want, I want to help you get better, but we're going to talk about the cancer that's going on right now. Come as a friend and I come to wound you. One of the most poignant statements I've heard. And it's, again, that's not postmodern at all. That isn't postmodern at all. Matthew 18 gives us a real clear um, understanding of how to move through um, believers who are, who are struggling or not walking in the right direction. It isn't just a one strike and you're out. It is a go to him. If you see him one-on-one -on -one and it's like, man, I, what you're doing, I'm not sure it's right. Can you come back to me? Please come back. I, you shouldn't be doing that. And if he goes, screw you, no way. I can keep doing what I want to do. It feels right to me. If he keeps doing that, what's it say to do? Grab a buddy, come back. Please come back. What you're doing, it's going to end up harming you and it's harming others. Please stop. And if he says, never mind, come back with even more people and put them in front of the church. And if at that point he still says, I will not submit. It's real clear at that point he's choosing not to. That's like, that's like the football player, the quarterback, going... Yeah, I know the line judge and the main referee and the guy up in the booth and all of them, all of them said that I was offsides when I threw the pass. I don't believe it. I'm still playing and there's nothing you can do about it. Is that how it's going to work in football? <laughs> Never. You're going to get the boot. You're, you're not playing quarterback anymore. If you're going to play football, you submit to the authorities. You submit to the referees. Then that keeps the game running. That keeps the, the game moving forward. All right. How's everyone doing? Questions, thoughts at this point? Because we're going to shift gears just a little bit. Yes, sir. Real loud. Yes. And they argued with each other and yes. argued with each other. I yes. went to a Bible college and watched professors argue with each other about the, the objective truth. Yeah. To the point where I don't have the confidence to say I know the objective truth. Right. And I don't trust anybody to tell me what that is. Right. You're not alone. You are not alone. Many people in this room right here have watched Christians not behave well with each other. They haven't actually. Another phrase I learned early on was a, a, a um, what is the phrase? Did I learn it or did I forget it? Um, oh, a Christian theologian who doesn't love well isn't a very good theologian. He doesn't understand 
the message of Scripture. And so that pain, the church, I know, has left scars on individuals, and those scars are very real. I've sat through some of them myself. That's one of the reasons I've actually done this series as well, is because my hope is to help people to redeem the church in some way, because I believe the church truly can be a powerful agent of change and healing and transformation. Not just counselors, not just psychologists, not just these people out here in a kind of a postmodern world. We, we all have our roles, we all have the important skill set, but I think the church is uniquely designed and built to bring peace because it is founded in truth. Now what you're concerned about is actually how do you interpret truth. That's an entirely different series. Um, and I would refer you to many of the very smart pastors at this church. Do you see that? Just totally dodge that right there. Um, sorry, Bill. That's you, buddy. That's you too, Ben, by the way. He has grown up watching Christians in fight, arguing over what is objective truth. What is true, what is not true. All in the goal of discovering objective truth, but now it comes down to a matter of interpretation. Right? And, and that is a very real, very true thing. So I'm not ignoring that. And again, that's actually probably going to be week three or four. I can't remember. And I, I'm hoping to actually do some tag teaming with some pastors here to wrestle through those things because the church, even in its broken, frail, imperfect state, I still believe can provide remarkable healing for, for our broken humanity, not just counselors. Now again, I like being a counselor. I love being a counselor. I truly love being a counselor. Um, I like being a counselor who tag teams with the church much, much, much better. I, I have a team now, and it's rooted in truth, not just subjectivity makes my job actually better. But I'm a weird counselor out there. I'm in the minority. I want you to hear that. I am just, that's just bizarre. Okay, here we go. Jumping on to the next one. If I can do one. Um, happiness and expectations of God. This is going to be interesting. I got a movie clip to show you from. Anyone seen that series? Um, <clears throat> we're going to watch the first seven and a half, eight minutes of this series. I want you to pay attention to a couple things, if you can. Um, I want you to count the word happy, happiness, those, that theme in the dialogue. Okay? Here we go. This is the very opening scene of the entire series. Hello, Randy. Are they here? I've been so looking forward to this. Mm -hmm. Me too. Oh, the boys aren't here yet. Oh, boy, nothing gets by you. Uh, we won't be needing this. Oh, 
Wait, what do you use to sop up sauce with? I don't need sauce. I'd like a vodka martini, straight up, very dry, please. And two olives on the side. You do know that vodka is made from potatoes. Alcohol has its own rules. So. So. Mm -hmm. What do you think is so important that we have to have dinner tonight? I'm getting something. I have a very strong sense that this is the night they announce their retirement. I've been wondering the same thing. Of course, I'm not psychic. Oh, honey, you don't know that. No, I do. Because no one is. Well, I hope they do. Me too. Hello. Oh. Hi, sweetheart. No appetizers, no dessert. How are you, love? Hello, Saul. Hello, Grace. These mussels are delicious. And the crab, so fresh. And they give you three sauces. Look at this oyster. Do you think they realize they live in their own spoon? <laughs> We've already had this seafood platter 700 times. Saul's a little anxious tonight. Something happened at the office? Actually, we do want to talk to you, too, about something. Right, Saul? Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, um... As you know, we're getting better with age, and this can be a very exciting chapter we're about to open in the book of life. It feels alive with possibility and change. And Frankie herself says change is always good, especially when starting this new chapter of our lives. This new chapter of our lives is going to be over if you don't get to the point. I'll do it. <clears throat> No, it's okay. Robert, please, Saul. <clears throat> what Saul is trying to say is, I'm leaving you. And he's leaving you. For this next chapter of our lives. You're leaving me? Yes. Who is she? Oh, it's not what you think. It's a he. Excuse me? And it's Saul. I'm in love with Saul. Saul and I are in love. My Saul? <laughs> your Saul. You mean you're gay? And this is who you're gay with? This is who I'm in love with. God. No, this makes no sense. You're business partners. You're not lovers. Friends. How long has this been going on? Well, it's been, I don't know exactly. 20 years. <gasps> You don't think there was a better time to tell us this? Like, say, any time over the last two decades? I'm gonna throw up. I'm so sorry. Why now? We want to get married. Oh. Married? Because we can do that now. I know. I hosted that fundraiser. Oh, my God. This is why you brought us here. You didn't want me to make a scene, did you, Robert? You thought this place would protect you. You spineless chicken. Don't, don't do that. Sorry, are people looking? You want to see? I'll give you a seat. No, actually, I didn't oh, want to see. Son of a bitch! I can't believe this is happening. Breathe. No! Breathe. Breathe. In two, three. Take Breathe. your fucking hand off my sternum. Please. Grace. 
course. I'm sorry, Frankie. I didn't know how to handle it. Well, good job picking the worst way imaginable. Some things there's no good way to do. How do I tell the woman I've loved for 40 years that I can't be with her if I want to be happy? You don't. Right out the clock. Stay miserable. I've got news for you. The next chapter is not that long. Wait, is that why you got the Cialis? Everyone gets Cialis at my age. You probably should sleep in the den. Can I talk to you for a second, please? I don't know. Not talking is your forte. Well, I'm talking now, and I'm sorry. I just never thought you'd be this upset. What did you think I'd be? I honestly thought you'd be relieved. Relieved? Really? Relief is what you're feeling. I'm feeling like the last 40 years have been a fraud. Now, come on. Only the last 20 years were a fraud. That's a joke. Uh, no, mm -mm. no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to pretend that this is nothing. No, you're right. It is not nothing. And I should have told you a long time ago. But let's be honest. Were you ever really happy with me? was happy enough. So we didn't have the romance of the century, but I thought we were normal. I thought we were like everybody else. I thought this was life. And I thought there was more. <laughs> Would have been easier if you'd died. I can't remember the last time I've slept without you. I know I've done it, but I, I can't remember. Loved me for who you, 
who you are. Ironic, isn't it? I hate that I hurt you. I really do love you. Last comment he laid, said while they're laying in bed there. What do you think about that statement given his actions over the last two hours of that evening? I hate that I hurt you and I really do love you. Is that a congruent statement? Now, here's what I want you to do as you are wrestling with this internally. This is one of those topics that I want you to see through the actual topic itself, okay? Don't care about same sex, don't care about um, uh, uh, heterosexual, homosexual stuff. That's not the issue at the moment. It is, can you leave a spouse of 40 years for anybody and say, I hate that I hurt you, I love you? Is that a congruent statement? I'll give you a chance to wrestle, and you can actually say out loud if you, what your thoughts are. If you want to just hold on to that, you can be quiet as well. Or any thoughts about that? If love is a feeling and not action, then yes. So, is love just a feeling without action? How many... Don't answer this, but how many people are in this room who were um, inappropriately touched or even molested on, in the name of love? Again, don't answer that, but pay attention to that. Is that a congruent way to live? Do you notice what's going on inside with that clip? Anyone want to put words to it? Because again, this is, we're going to wrestle through some of this. I know that it stirs up stuff, and I want to tread carefully onto this, but I think this is the dilemma we're facing in our world right now, because it would be fair to say that this is a fairly postmodern couple. How many times did you hear the word happy in there? And what was the context for happiness? Someone, somebody, give me one of the quotes that you remember. He said it three times. Good count. Very, very good. Were you ever happy with me? So that's, again, a judgment of should we keep going or not? Great question. One other time was when um, this couple here, um, earlier in the scene, he said, um, I love you, but I want to be happy. And that is, his, that is now his his decision matrix. He's just told you what his decision matrix is. I'm going to do the thing that's going to make me happy. And her response was what? Right out the clock. Come on. Be miserable like the rest of us. The next chapter isn't that long anyway. When we use happiness as a determinant of truth, we get into trouble. It actually starts to cause problems. It is because the meaning of life in the United States is the pursuit of personal pleasure and uh, pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom, that suffering is so traumatic for Americans. It's a poignant statement. Americans specifically, I would argue um, um, a lot of the world, because the meaning of life is the pursuit of pleasure and personal freedom. Suffering 
now hurts more because they use happiness as a determinant of what I should do if something is right or wrong. If it makes me happy, then it must be right. If it makes me unhappy, it must be wrong. That is a very common mentality, very postmodern, would you say? Do you recognize how that is highly subjective, not based in objective truth, but it is based in, in subjectivity? The Christian version of that, if something doesn't make me happy, it must not be God's will. Ouch. I hear that a lot. That's an interpretation of Scripture of God's will is for me to be happy. Will you invite me back if I say that might not be true? He loves you. He wants you to grow. He wants ultimate happiness. But immediate happiness right now isn't actually love. Again, if, if I use that same logic towards raising my children, they would never have gotten shots. I wouldn't have made them brush their teeth. I just want them to like me. So if you don't want to brush your teeth, that's okay. Don't, go ahead. Don't worry about it. That's not love. I have to endure momentary times where they don't love me, where they don't like me, where I'm not, they're not happy, and I have their greater good in mind. Um, if you're still confused on the concept, it might sound like this. Sing along. Sing along. Right? It makes you happy. See? You all know it. Wonderful, wonderful postmodern song. Wonderful postmodern song. If it makes you happy, what? It can't be that bad. Right? Got a hand here? Okay. Right. You're right. So we have a little conflict back and forth between the two of that. Um, one of the other lines later in the song is, so, so what if right now everything's wrong? Like, who cares if we're doing everything wrong? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. So, yeah, I, I appreciate the spin on the second half of that. That's great. But you guys got to memorize. Here's another version of it. This will be fun. I wish I could dance. I can't. But. I just had to get through that. <laughs> I 
just ruined someone's Pandora list. I'm sorry. I can't believe that. Here's the, here's the lyrics of that, okay? Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. No idea what that means, okay? Just, we'll skip that. Um, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Welcome to postmodern world, ladies and gentlemen. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. And then what do you do with it? Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. I get it. Okay, so I'm not here critiquing the song. It's catchy. It's snappy. It's one of those ear things that gets stuck and you will be singing it all night long. You're welcome. It's just a catchy tune. I, I, we don't need to read that much into the song itself, but, it, but that postmodern idea sneaks into everywhere. Everywhere. And it, and it starts to kind of feel right-ish all the time. I just want you to be, again, I want to educate you so you can capture how often it's showing up in these weird little places all the time. <sighs> practical deists, that's the term. Most young American adults are practical deists. They see God as a being whose job it is to meet their needs. The implicit but strong cultural assumption of young adults is that God owes all but the most villainous people a comfortable life. This premise, however, inevitably leads to bitter disillusionment. Life is nasty, hard, brutish, and always feels too short. The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion. It's a good grief. Come on! The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. Spiritual entitlement. I should have titled the series that because that's what it actually is a case of. I'm entitled to happiness, and if God doesn't give me that, why in the world do I want to believe in a God who's that way anyway? That leads to pain when we live that out on a practical measure. We watched it play out in this movie right there. The entire rest of the series is how these two women, who obviously aren't, don't get along, they aren't of the same ilk, they, they, they aren't friends by any means, and how they have to survive this catastrophic, life-altering experience together because their husband said, we have to do something that makes us happy. I hope that works out for you. That is not love. I'm going to qualify that. That is not love if you choose to believe an objective source of what love is objective truth. If you say, I'm a postmodernist and I can choose my own truth, then they are living 100% congruent. They are the perfect postmodernist and they should keep doing that as much as they can. And it doesn't matter who it hurts. Because if it's true for me, I might as well just keep living that way. Postmodernist mentality, when it's practical, when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of it, leaves a massive wake of wounded souls in its path, and I, in, in its wake, and I, and I don't want to see people hurt that way anymore. It breaks my heart. I've sat with that woman whose husband leaves her because he just gets tired of her and says, you go do whatever the hell you want to do because I just don't care anymore and I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. I've sat with those women. I've sat with those men who've experienced that from their spouse. And it's heartbreaking. Skip that part. 
our formula for happiness, according to the world, better possessions, plus peaceful circumstances, plus exciting experiences, plus perfect appearance, plus right relationships, equals, oh, booga booga, ultimate happiness. Sensitive buttons. Better possessions, peaceful circumstances, exciting experiences, perfect appearance, right relationships. Now I'm happy. And a lot of clients come in saying, Paul, can you help me get all of those things? Because they're looking for that level of happiness. And believe me, I really wish I could give that to them. I truly do. I haven't figured out that formula myself. I don't know how to actually execute that. And so... I have to have that difficult conversation with them going, I can't actually make that happen. Yes? You're right. Oh, Scripture states that it's our holiness that he seeks. I would agree 100%. In fact, I think the formula that Scripture lays out, if we're believers, is we are called to lay down our lives... We're called to love our enemies. We are called to give without expectation of return. And we're called to take up our cross so that we can be Christ-like and have eternal happiness. Maybe not momentary happiness, but long-term eternal happiness. Does that make sense? That is what Christians are called to. Now here's where it gets disappointing, frustrating. I don't know what the word would be here. Um, a lot of people show up and go, I want to be happy. I'm going to join a church, and Christ is going to make me happy. And again, I can appreciate the intent, the desire to be happy, but when you are trying to use Christianity to make yourself happy, Christianity is one of the stupidest ways you could ever do that, because that's the recipe. And this is actually why people... In a postmodern, univer, univer, universalistic, universalistic world, they will go try on multiple worldviews or religions, trying to find the one that, that helps them be happy according to their terms. So if Christianity doesn't cut it, let's go try Hinduism. If that doesn't cut it, let's try Buddhism. If that doesn't try it, let's try Islam. If that doesn't try it, let's try, and let's try, and let's try. And so... All religions lead to God. Actually, more specifically, all religions are supposed to lead to happiness. That is not the world we live in. If you are going to be a believer, and again, I'm not presuming all of you are, but if you're going to, Christianity actually says, I want you to come and you're going to give up your will. Um, let's get to it here. God hijacks our life. I like that word hijack because that's literally... I'm in the plane, I'm going in this direction, and God shows up and says, no, we are not going that direction anymore, give me the controls. And if you're going to surrender to him, another word the postmodernists don't like, if you're going to surrender to him, you say, okay, you can now have the wheel, and I will go where you want me to go. Not guaranteed happiness, but guaranteed what? Relationship, huh? Guaranteed Christ likeness, which also comes along with what? Say again. Growth. That's a great thing. Yeah, growth. What else? 
Tribulation, yeah, that's, you're the downer. Let's stick to the happy but You're right, we're going to suffer. We absolutely will suffer. Again, Scripture is very, very clear on that. But what does suffering bring for us? Growth, peace, okay? Relationship, unconditional love. I want to have a relationship with you. Trust me, and you will always be loved. All you got to do is just be here with me. Not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. And if you screw up, I'm still going to love you. Truly. Truly. And by the way, I'm a lot smarter than you are. Stop trying to take the wheel back. He hijacks our life. And as believers, again... When you say, I will let you do that, and now my job is to try to conform myself to become in your image, we now actually have purpose and hope and intent so that when we hit crappy situations right now, we're able to go, okay, this is going to get me to where I want to be, and I can actually endure them, and I don't have to be hopeless. The hopelessness is what makes current life pain and trouble and struggles and addictions and abuse recovery and trauma and all that. Hopelessness is the cancer. It's toxic. And when I watch people lose that hope, then they resort to the, well, Scripture talked about this a long time before I was talking about, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we... It doesn't matter anyway. We might as well just try to be happy any way we can. And it leads to emptiness. I'm actually doing really decent on time. I can't believe it. It's 8.30 right now. I've got five more minutes, and then let's wrestle together. Let's do some Q&A and stuff like that. Um, oh, our culture says ruthless competition is the key to success. Jesus says that ruthless compassion is the purpose of our journey. That's the question for how do we relate to non-believers. Ruthless compassion would be a great word. I'm going to love on you till you are sick of it. One of, one of the stories I grew up with my dad telling me, um, he, years ago, years and years ago, he uh, sat with a pastor, and the pastor was telling his own story, big, huge guy, Marine, ex-Marine guy. And um, he became a believer because when he was in basic training, as a non-believer, there was this five foot nothing, 98 pound weakling guy um, who was in basic training with him who was a believer. And this, this smaller guy um, got picked on a lot by this bigger guy. And as, the, as this big, huge Marine would pick on him, he would return the picking and the, and the jeering and all of that with love. And it started to annoy this big guy until finally it culminated, culminated with one night this big huge marine has taken off his big old combat boots and hucks it at this guy's head, bashes him against the side of the head, big huge waffle print on the side of his face, and laughs about it and goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning and his boots are polished and sitting perfectly at the foot of his bed. He said, at that moment I couldn't escape it. At that moment, I said, there's something crazy about this guy, and I don't know how in the world he does it, but I've got to know about it. Ends up actually surrendering his life to Christ, becoming a believer. He's now a pastor, telling the story. 
ruthless compassion. Now again, it is not easy. Someone ran into the side of my car a month and a half ago. I have been fighting the insurance and the guy who did it almost daily for two months now. I don't like him and I don't like insurance. And I don't want to be Christ-like. I don't. So I'm growing, I'm struggling, I'm trying to grow through it. And so every time it's like, okay, treat the person on the other end of the phone with kindness, with, with grace, with patience. Be honest with them. And I've done that. Gal's name is Amanda. Hi, Amanda, it's Paul again. Hi, Paul. Any answers in my car yet? Nope. Amanda, I know it's not your fault. You're just delivering the message, but you gotta, I got to let you know, I don't like your insurance company right now. They're driving me crazy. She goes, I'm really sorry. Is that kind? Is that respectful? Is that still treating her kindly and still honoring my truth, my feelings? Okay? So I can do that. Again, welcome to postmodernism. It's not a bad thing, validating feelings and all that stuff. Um... We're resistant because we have difficulty trusting God will truly take us to a good, comfortable, happy place. A lot of people will sign up for that. Show me the brochure. How does it end? Oh, good, happy, fantastic, excellent. I'm getting on that train. He doesn't give us that. Oh, surrender. Again, that word we don't like. That, I found that picture. That's got to be Photoshopped. I hope that's Photoshopped. But that captures it really good, doesn't it? That is craziness. I always remember the scene uh, at the end of um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark 3. Remember that? Anyone? That's years. Some of you weren't even born, I think, before that movie, when that movie came out. But at the end, I'm giving away the end. Spoiler alert if you don't want to see. He has to take a leap of faith because he's got to get across his chasm and he can't see a bridge or anything. You get, someone told him it's a leap of faith. Oh my gosh. So, you know, steps out onto it and it's an optical illusion and the path is actually there the whole time but it blends in with the stone on the other side. And when he steps on it, then the camera pans over here and so you can see the whole bridge. It's one of those things, you know. Harrison Ford, he's a good representation of Christ. That good works. <clears throat> Temporary pain for long-term reward. Personal trainers, you actually pay money to say, I want you to make me hurt temporarily for a long-term reward, right? Financial advisors, tell me to not spend my money so I have more money later. I don't know how those guys stay in business, but they do, okay? Temporary pain for long-term reward. Counselors, oh. (laughs) Or pastors, you know, they can have pastors who... Again, try to help change your behavior. Or that pastor. Or that pastor. Or that pastor. Ben's going to unfriend me from Facebook for sure. Huh. Oh, short oh, term pain for long term peace. Even, um, that's a good strategy, and and not just people that you turn to. These are the people who, who, again, you hire to get you where you want to be, but then actually approach events and experiences. So, for instance, football. I'm pretty sure that's a fair block right there, legal block. Um, But 
the best coaches, the best, the best strategists are going to say you're not going to win every game, but you want to play consistently. You, you're going to lose a couple. You're going to get knocked back a couple yards. You're never going to have 100% forward progress every game all season long. It's just not going to happen. You have to be, be comfortable with failures and setbacks and struggles at some time. Um, battlefields, war. You've, the phrase is real common, you know. Uh, you've lost the battle but won the war. Wars are made up of small little incursions and, and little struggles. Um, uh, financial investing, again, uh, again, following it is ups and downs. It's not a straight line up. Again, a lot of us would go, show me the guaranteed returns, and then I'll sign up for that, for that stock or that dividend or that, that bond or whatever that is. And that's, that's why, again, financial advisors, I guess, make their money because they say this one will make you money on the long term. Um, just married. Marriage is this. I've been married 23 years, and I can tell you the two bad days out of all 23 years, no, <laughs> a lot of bad days, a lot of bad seasons in our relationship. It isn't guaranteed 100% happiness. There are seasons where we have to be comfortable just with the concept of it's not going to be good for a while. It doesn't mean the whole thing's over. It just means we got to get through this little patch at the moment. This is the life we live. This is the world we're living in. And it's, and it's appropriate for us to go, oh, this is just one of those crappy times. Okay, I'm going to learn how to endure it. I can still have hope in the midst of struggle and pain and discouragement. That's, oh, that's life. That's my representation of life. Just life in general is that way. Again, there is no guarantee of long-term personal happiness. Life requires eternal long-term perspective. And here's how that works. Um, again, I love scripture in some of these ways. 2 Corinthians 4 is just stunning. Stunning in some of this. We are experiencing trouble. I kind of paraphrase some of this. Um, we are experiencing trouble on every side, but are not crushed. Does that sound true? We trouble everywhere. Okay? Some people can say, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, and we are knocked down, but not destroyed. This is how a believer with an eternal perspective can go through pain. And what I love about it is he's not going, oh, you're a believer. You're not going to get knocked down. You're not going to have trouble. You're not going to have... He's not giving you that promise at all. It doesn't exist. He goes, when you get knocked down, you're not destroyed. When you're perplexed, you're not driven to despair. Scripture accounts for pain. It doesn't ignore it. It's refreshing. Always carrying around the death of Jesus... Suffering like him, that's my words in there. So that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. Here's what that means. So let's put that first one. We are knocked down but not destroyed, always carrying around the death of Jesus. Jesus suffered. He got beaten up. His world was not easy. And so as we suffer, as we hurt, as we struggle, we also are experiencing life the way Christ did. So we're carrying around the death of Jesus. And so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. What is truly amazing is Christ hurt for a season. And then what happened? He did not stay wounded. He did not stay in pain. He did not stay bleeding and broken. He actually lived. And so 
The writer here is going, guys, you're going to be hurting, you're going to be bleeding, you're going to be broken, even unto the point of death maybe. And guess what? That's not the worst of it because you get to live again. There's a, there's a good ending to this. And so if you know that you're going to live, what are we afraid of the little, the little setbacks along the way? What, why are we really afraid? It's truly amazing. We do so, endure suffering, because we know that the one who raised up Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. That's the end of the story. That is the end of the story. Every good movie, every good movie is beginning, conflict, struggle, pain, strife, and then Here's how the end of the movie, usually happy ending or positive ending in some way. We have the ultimate happy ending. But we have momentary conflict right now. Therefore, we do not despair. I don't want you to lose hope. Therefore, we do not despair. But even if our physical body is wearing away, our inner person is being renewed day by day by day. There's a positive benefit for it. It hurts, it struggles. But again, you're paying someone to put you on a treadmill and, and work you that way. What if this is God's treadmill? I want you to work out. I'm actually working out your spirit. I'm working out your heart. I'm working out your emotions because I want you to be stronger internally. Now, you didn't know you signed up for the gym. You just got born into the gym and you're stuck there. But the struggling is going to actually help in build endurance within you. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. If that's not the most hopeful passage in Scripture, I'm not so sure what is. It's just awesome. It's just great. Man. So the question is, oops. Oh, because we're not looking at what can be seen. This, I even forgot the best part. Ha <laughs> ha. Because we are not looking at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. That goes against postmodernism in the face. They hate, they hate that. Well, you, you, I can only see what is right now, and if this is what I need to make me happy right now, I should do that. When you're living according to an objective truth, the objective truth is, no, you have to deny yourself sometimes. You have to carry your cross sometimes. You have to love your enemy sometimes because there is a greater unseen truth that you have to trust. And when you do that, it's actually more real than the tangible stuff you can feel right now. The pain and the suffering and the bitterness and the hurt that you're enduring. For what, is, what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. How real is the eternal to you? That's where we have hope. That's what I want you to walk away with. If I could give that to every single one of my clients, that, that your pain is real, and I feel it, and I'm going to sit in it with you, and I'm not going to leave you alone in it, and, 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 it's not going to last forever. And you can actually have hope. And in the midst of this, even if it kills you, even if it feels like you're going to die in the midst of it. There is a hope that you, that you can actually feel and live and experience. And I want you to have that in your life. That's, that's what I want to grab all my clients and shake into them. But if I did that, I wouldn't be counseling very much. So I'm done. Thoughts, questions, ideas, feedback, struggles inside, questions you got going on. 
things like that. I have a couple questions from last week that I can throw up there, but I want to give a chance in the moment to kind of tag some of this. I'm going to grab him first. I'll come right back to you. Yes, sir. Real loud. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. Yes. We hate that answer. For, can, can you guys hear it all? For people who have not had an experience, opportunity. So again, people who have been injured and have brain damage or schizophrenia or mental illness that kind of gets in the way of being able to experience some of this. What is God's answer to that? And according to Job, his, his answer is, I am God. Our postmodern world hates that answer. We go back to that. I would go back to that part of I have to understand it first and if I can understand it then I, and I agree with it, then I'll follow you. And the minute we do that, we place ourselves into a, into a position in relationship to God which is not very stable ground. And I don't have an answer for you. And that, again, actually causes a little bit of strife within me because I want to be able to say this formula, this and this and this, and here's how God works, and ta-da, all done. I don't have that because I don't know. I don't know. I do trust. Trust. I can't give evidence, but I do trust that God is faithful and he knows each person's heart in a way that I never will. I don't know your heart. I truly can't know that, but I trust God knows your heart. And I, and I have to sit in that ambiguity. Is that a good word for it? And again, our postmodern world doesn't like ambiguity. We like concrete answers. We like solutions. That's hard. But I appreciate you bringing that up because that's a legitimate concern. I, very legitimate concern. Yes? Real loud if you can. I'm sorry. Yep. Right. That kind of like confuses me. Yeah. And then um, the, the other one that I'm kind of struggling with is uh, the idea of completely objective truth. How does one account for the fact that even between highly educated biblical scholars uh, who are highly committed to God yep. uh, with their personal relationship with God, there's huge doctrinal differences. Disagree. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Those are good questions. Again, to summarize real fast, um, amongst genuinely um, educated and um, scholarly individuals who are trying to understand God's scripture and interpret that well, there's still disagreements between those guys. And how do we, again, decipher some of that? That's an interpretation question again. I think it would be great if there was a, a... church that would invite people in to ask these questions on, I don't know, a random night of the week, like a Monday night, and a pastor was available to come and, and offer some, some insight into those, uh, because that might be an interesting conversation. Um, I don't, I'm very intentionally, and I'm, I'm actually drawing a line here, of I'm not going to answer the interpret, interpretation question, even though I actually think there's very clear answers on that. Um, and if we go to that chart, the postmodern chart, um, postmodernism loves to argue over even meaning of terms. So they actually redefine things, which can confuse some of this stuff as well. I'm not going to tackle the interpretation question because I can't give it enough time and justice within this process. Um, I do think there are members who happen to be sitting right here in the room who have some ability to speak into that in a longer dialogue and, and context for those questions. And it'd be great if you asked those questions. It might be really fun, actually. Throwing you under the bus, Bill. And Ben. Where are you, Ben? I don't even see him here. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. At least for me, I'd like to ask it again. Sure, please. I heard earlier in your presentation this evening yeah. that for us to be Christ-like, right. we need to be doing. This is not the words you used, but it's the way I. Okay. We need to be beacons of light, lamps set on a hill. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get the confidence to actually tell someone they're wrong? Again, because there's so much disagreement on what is wrong, even within that context. Um, I would probably argue that even amongst the, and again, I'll throw Bill under the bus on some of this later on. even amongst the disagreements amongst scholars and people who are studying this, there are still things which are generally agreed upon. I have sat in the room with a believing husband and wife, and the husband is having an open affair. He is not hiding it. He's not ashamed about it. And he is refusing to stop. I believe as a believer, I can approach him and say, Scripture is very clear about fidelity to your spouse. And I don't have to, my dispensationalism or my pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill theology doesn't affect that. Um, I think I can make a very clear distinction that says your behavior is bad and wrong and sinful and, and inappropriate and it needs to stop. I say that kindly, I say that lovingly, um, but I also think a majority of, of people who study scripture and a study scripture according to um, again, see, here's on getting an interpretation piece. Um, 
not just scripture, but there's a way to interpret any piece of written literature based upon intent of the author, context, those things that actually can be known. And if you try to spin some of those to fit what your, either your culture or your subjective belief is, I don't actually think you're doing good interpretation. So there's actually rules around interpreting written documents and things like that. And, and those things actually can be agreed upon, again, in general. That's a rough answer for some of that, but... All right, let's see. I got one, two, three. Let's do these last three, and then I'm just watching the time. I want to honor your time. So one, two, and then we're coming back to you. Please, real loud. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We got Theology 101 going on right now. That's fantastic. Nicely done. One more. Thank you so much, by the way. Thank you. Real loud again. Right. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the first. Good question. The first piece. Um, and the second one would just be like, how would you, how would you compare or contrast keeping someone accountable versus judging them? Yeah. <clears throat> um, the answers I'm going to give you are going to be. Uh, broader. I, I wish I could go a little bit more into depth, but again, I'm just kind of watching the time here real quickly. Um, the first question is, if you don't have an established relationship or a high level of trust or what I call emotional equity in the relationship, how do you confront someone or tell them that they're wrong? I actually believe there is a context for that which is appropriate. Um, uh, before you get to that kind of step, I would probably go to the, um, if I see you doing something which is uh, <coughs> contrary to scripture, I would actually try to find someone who does have that established relationship with you and actually confirm my perception. I don't know this person as well as you know them. Are you noticing what I'm noticing? If they can confirm, yes, I can see that happening as well, then I actually would borrow their emotional equity um, and say, I would kind of jump over that first step and go, we are coming to you um, because we are concerned for you. I've seen this. I've noticed that. And, and again, borrowing that emotional equity from someone else who does have that established relationship with you. That would be, that would be my step. 
um, to, to get to that, to present you with that truth again. Um, the second question was, I just lost it again real fast. Accountability versus judging. Um, I think, again, Scripture is incredibly clear that um, Christ is comfortable with people in process, and he doesn't expect perfection. Um, he, does, he does desire heart condition. He wants people who are striving to live Christ-like and to conform themselves to him. And when you can see people's um, heart condition is, is appropriate, but their execution sucks, you can address the behavior and still acknowledge the heart. You can still go to them and say, I'm not judging you as a human being. You still have value, you have worth. You're in process like I'm in process. I don't have any right at all to condemn where you're at in that process. I can say this behavior right here is actually not going to be helpful for you, and I can, I can nudge you on a couple ways. One is I'm a little further down the road, and I made that exact same mistake myself, and let me tell you where it ended up. I just don't want you to end up stuck there. Or let's, we're doing this together, and, and I want you to still stay encouraged without, without getting mired into the bad behavior. It's actually, the closest example or, or um, analogy I have is good parenting. Because parents are called to guide their children through life. And that is changing their behaviors and putting restrictions and putting, putting boundaries on their behavior and all those things like that and still unconditionally loving them. I think we're called to do that primarily because we've received that first. Because we've received that, we actually don't have a lot of ground to go, let me just point out how much you suck, okay? That doesn't work. Last one. Yes. And the boot in the face story. Boot in the face, ruthless compassion. How, how does that take into consideration boundaries or not enabling someone? And are we supposed to be and have ruthless compassion only for non-believers? And if we're supposed to have that for believers, then how do we do that in Um, I thought I had it up there. Beautiful, beautiful question. Um, I can't get it in a minute because it's too important. Would you be kind enough to write it down, everything you just said there, or I'll listen to it again and, and write it down myself. Um, elegant question, and it's too important to skip over and miss. So... Um, Stand up and repeat it. Yes, that's what you get for sitting in the front row. Okay, um, so how, how, if you're taking into consideration ruthless compassion, how does that um, play into having boundaries with others and not enabling them? So if someone's addicted to heroin, how do you keep saying, okay, I'm going to be yep. Someone keeps throwing boots at your head. You just keep saying, yep, you're going to keep shining your boots. Yeah. That seems yep. like that's not a loving thing to do. Right. Um, and then I said, are we, if this, are we supposed to be ruthlessly compassionate only to non-believers? And if we're supposed to be that way to believers, how are we 
man, you guys got good questions. You get, your brains are just chewing well tonight. I, I think I mentioned last week, I was actually a little nervous to deliver this because it is it stirs a lot of core beliefs. Actually, the way I described it to my daughter last week driving home, what I was feeling. As a counselor, I have two jobs. Number one job is to comfort the disturbed. Okay, that's a good job as a counselor. And my second job is to disturb the comfortable. Every series up until now has been in the first category. That's a lot nicer. People like you when you're providing comfort. This one feels a little bit closer to that second category. I know that it's challenging. That question there is so wonderful. Again, it deserves to be wrestled with, and that's why I want to give it the time. And a lot of the questions you guys have, I'm watching your faces, and I can see the kind of the bouncing back and forth. I want to honor that. That's, that's worth good time. Um, I'll do my best to even shorten up next week so we have more time for some of these questions because I actually like the dialogue better than just the speaking at you. Um, I learn a lot from you guys. And so I'm, I'm glad to sit in the room with people who are chewing and asking and wrestling and struggling. And I hope also I can do a little bit of the first half. I do want to provide comfort. I want to provide hope. I want to provide... Um, I want you to see how this can end and strengthen your eternal perspective so that you know it's light and momentary struggles, even if it feels like it's life-ending. So I am honored to sit with you tonight. Thank you so much again for the questions and your, your attention. That is incredibly important to me, and I'm honored to have that. Thank you for my patience with the buttons that bounce back and forth. Still working through the glitches, and I'll try to get my typos better next time. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.